the sixth conference of the retreat turns to the New Testament and begins with a reflection of the very unique and ordinary role of Mary, the mother of Jesus, and of her cousin Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, and their joyful experience and expression of knowing the ways of God in our lives. It continues with an exploration of how Jesus, a human male, reveals how the fullness of humanity is fully feminine and masculine at the same time. So good morning, everyone. Good morning. Hope you had a, a good night. So starting now, we're going to turn our attention to the New Testament. Um, and in some ways, it's central figure of Jesus of Nazareth. Um, this is uh, it's one of the great insights for me in the last couple of years, especially trying to teach our graduate students Christian spirituality and really trying to introduce them to the Jesus of history and Jesus of Nazareth and uh, who he really was. And um, one of the things that uh, kind of it's somewhat a little bit difficult for us to get our heads around, but it's as important and necessary. And that is the, the crucial insight that Jesus reveals God to us, which means that we need to be careful about projecting onto Jesus what we think God should be like. And instead, move our, our imaginations, our projections out of the way so that Jesus as Jesus is can show us as much of the truth as we're gonna get about what God is really like. So among the things that that means we might have to uh, put brackets around or even file away somewhere or you know, just hide are some of the notions about God that we pretend to project onto Jesus, like that he knew everything all the time and that he never had to learn anything and that every step of his life was already in his consciousness and that he knew exactly what was going to happen to him every step of the way and that the crucifixion and the resurrection were no, not surprising whatsoever and that his ability to accept God's will was a foregone conclusion um, because it had already been all figured out. And seeing the incarnation, as, as, as one author puts it, as um, where the Trinity got together and had a meeting and wrote the script and then sent Jesus down to enact it. That can be a little dangerous because it can be deprived, they, they deprive us of the real revelatory power of what Jesus has to offer us. So that God is all-knowing, they might need to hold that in, in abeyance, because that's a philosophical concept. That's not a revelation that comes out of the scriptures. It's a, an inference that comes from um, our wondering about if there is indeed the supreme being, what must be true of the supreme being. And there's nothing wrong with that, except the supreme being has chosen to reveal to us the truth about the supreme being we might be surprised by what it is. So the all-knowing thing might need to be put some brackets around it. The all-powerful thing might need to be put some brackets around it. Because what we see in Jesus of Nazareth 
is not someone who is all-powerful, even though we see signs and wonders being worked, and him speaking with power and authority. What we see in Jesus of Nazareth is ultimately someone who's utterly powerless and subjected to the whims and the passions of human beings rather than the other way around. It's a bit of a shift that, that, that might take us by surprise. We might think we've already made it, but yet we might easily, easily fall into that. Um, the essence of the incarnation, is, as St. Augustine is really big on, um, is the revelation of the humility of God, not the transcendence of God, not the majesty of God, not the mightiness of God, but the humility of God, who, when it came time to reveal to us God's true love, comes in a very humble way, in a very powerless way, in a very poor way, in an insignificant way. And in all of that, God is revealed. So Augustine has this wonderful quote, if you want to reach the exalted Christ, and who doesn't? I mean, who wouldn't want to be hanging out with the exalted Christ? Um, that would be fun. But if you want to reach the exalted Christ, follow the humble Jesus. And and that's one thing that we might be being invited into in the next couple of days. But particularly, um, well, this whole notion that Jesus is the revelation of God places before us a pretty important question. So if Jesus is the revelation of God, and as we talked about yesterday, God is not one gender or the other, but the fullness of being, Jesus is the revelation of God. Why did Jesus have to be male? Indeed, that is going to reveal the fullness of God, the fullness of God. And then it kind of seems like an indisputable fact that Jesus was male. Um, no one's arguing about that too much. So why did he have to be male? And this is one of the questions of, of feminist Christology that Elizabeth Johnson and many others are, are wrestling with and have wrestled with. Um, but Elizabeth Johnson's chapter on feminist Christology in her book, Consider Jesus, uh, takes you through different responses of, uh, of, of feminism to the reality that Jesus was male, whole variety of, of, of things. Um, but as she reaches the end of her chapter, she offers kind of like where she has landed, uh, someone who has certainly struggled with this and embraced it and, and looked at it. And um, she quotes some, and, and gather some of the consensus among some feminist theologians that say that the problem is not that Jesus was male. The problem is that most men are not like Jesus. <laughs> and, and as Jesus reveals the, um, the reveals God to us, it is not a patriarchal male that he's revealing. It is a male who places himself in the presence of women in a, in a very equal fashion and with enormous dignity and allows them to um, be his equals and his co-workers and his intimate disciples and doesn't deprive them of that. Um, but then, as, of course, things get turned over to the church, the males took over, and we've got to keep wrestling with that. She also goes on to say um, this. If a woman had preached and enacted compassion 
and given the gift of self even unto death, the world would have shrugged. Because isn't that what women are supposed to do after all? But that it was a male who enacts compassion, profound mercy, self-giving sacrificial love even to the point of death, challenges the dominating patriarchy of the times and of all times. So I don't know how much how satisfying that is to anybody, but uh, it certainly is challenging to me as a male who um, would like to be like Jesus um, and realizes as Jesus reveals uh, God to us, that God is a humble God. God is not a patriarchal God. God is a God of mercy, compassion, equality, and inclusion. So we've got that. We have to wrestle with the, the reality that Jesus is male as he reveals God to us. And yet, let Jesus reveal God to us. Um, one of the things I want to kind of focus on, which is you know, actually just fun for me, uh, the infancy narratives of Matthew and Luke which are, of course, theologically um, great puzzles. They are, you know, they are parables. They contain truth reflected on over decades and maybe more of, you know, how do we tell the story that we've experienced? And there are, of course, no eyewitnesses to any of the infancy narratives, um, except perhaps Mary, the mother of Jesus. And we even see how that, but the Matthew and Luke construct their infancy narratives to reveal the whole story, the fullness of the story, not necessarily the facts of, of journalistic facts of, of how his birth came about. Um, so Luke starts, of course, with the uh, announcement of the birth of John the Baptist to Elizabeth, Mary's cousin, who is barren. And Zechariah, um, well, I keep reading this. So I don't see what he said that got the angel so mad. But nonetheless, <laughs> somehow his, his lack of faith in the angel's message that indeed his wife at a very advanced age is going to conceive a child who will be the prophet of the for, and the forerunner of the Messiah um, results in him being struck mute. But Elizabeth believes. Elizabeth believes. And then the next scene is, is the Annunciation. Um, again, you know, it's a highly theologically symbolic, parabolic construction. But nonetheless, sitting in the center of it is this fact that when indeed the God who created the universe, who is the sovereign and ruler of all that is, who is the, that he, the one who sustains all of creation in being and love, when that God chose to become one of us, to join us, to make the fullness of God's revelation possible in human form, the vehicle he chose to do this with was a 13-year-old girl living as a, in a very poor peasant village that was reviled then and was reviled decades later um, when the child to whom she gives birth comes from Nazareth. Um, I don't know how much time you've all spent with 13-year-old girls. 
I haven't spent much time in a while with 13-year-old girls, girls who are in college, and I wouldn't trust them with much. <laughs> um, 13-year-old girls, you know, maybe different times, different places, but the reality is, is that um, the one chosen to be the mother of God was a woman of absolutely no standing whatsoever. No credibility, no reason that anyone would hold her credible at all. And I, you know, when I was doing my directed retreat, I started to get to do all these imagination things, and I had so much fun with that. It was, it was great. So I'm trying as best I can as a more than middle-aged male to get into the mind of a 13-year-old girl in, um, you know, first century or last century Palestine in the middle of nowhere. What could be on her mind as she's experiencing what came to be known as the Annunciation? The image that I love about of the Annunciation, because there's hundreds and hundreds of them, is it's the depiction that uh, Henry Osgood Tanner has, where Mary is kind of waking up and her bed is unmade. She's sitting on the side of the bed, just kind of looking at this shaft of light that is the angel. I'm like, oh, that, okay. And she's somehow receiving this incarnation. But what's going on in her mind? And in my imagination, um, limited as it might be about what goes on in the minds of 13-year-old girls, thinking, what could she be worried about? Now, she is betrothed. So 13 or not, she's about to get married. And that's got to be a source of anxiety. And I wondered if um, what came to my mind is she knows she has a cousin, Elizabeth, who has been married for a long time and has been childless and is the object of ridicule and disdain, sometimes to her face, mostly behind her back. And Mary might be sitting there thinking, I don't want to be like my cousin Elizabeth. I hope I'm not barren. That would be awful. And then in the mind of 13-year-old girls, they flit about a little bit. So she might be recalling um, the embarrassment that a friend of hers, who's a little bit older, experienced when her wedding day came and her father ran out of wine and how awful that was and the embarrassment of the family. So Mary's got two things on her mind in my imagination. Sure, she had other things to worry about, but like, will I be able to have children? And will there be enough wine at my wedding so that I'm not ridiculed by my friends and neighbors and all that sort of thing? And into that worried mind comes this uh, invitation to let the Holy Spirit overshadow her and bring forth the Messiah, the Son of God, who would set people free. Okay, the next thing that happens answers some of her worries. Because the sign that this was really true is that her cousin Elizabeth, at her advanced age, is pregnant. And Mary's next move upon hearing that after saying, you know, let it be done to me according to your word, is to somehow go and visit her cousin. You have to overcome all the mystery. How does a girl get 90 miles? But nonetheless, she goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, which was a great gift. Because Mary has this now has this secret, this mysterious experience that has happened to her. She's been told about her cousin Elizabeth, doesn't understand that, but is drawn to her cousin, cousin Elizabeth. 
And she finds in Elizabeth the one human being on the face of the earth who could understand what happened to her, what she was going through. Because the closest human being to what Mary has been invited into was what Elizabeth has been invited into. The faith that Mary is being called to give, the closest person being asked to that is her cousin Elizabeth. So Mary doesn't go to Elizabeth to help Elizabeth. She may have been useful somehow. Mary goes to Elizabeth because what she needs is church. She needs someone else who can understand what she's being asked to do in faith. And that depiction in the Gospel of Luke of the visitation of, of Elizabeth hearing Mary's voice and this, the baby staring at her womb and Elizabeth's joyful greeting and Mary's joyful greeting back. Really, I can't find another scene in the entire scriptures that is more filled with just sheer joy. This is it. This is, this is it. Nothing gets better than this. None of the resurrection appearances have that kind of joy in it. They're all too confused to be joyful. But in Mary and Elizabeth, Jesus and John, meeting one another, understanding and sharing something that no one else on the face of the earth could possibly comprehend. They are just erupting with joy. And I always like to say, there it is. That is what we are called to. That is what church really is supposed to be about. That is what the people of God are about. Gathering in joy, celebrating the wonders that God has done for us and is promising to us. And in the background, there's a priest who can't talk. How much better than it can, can, can it get than that? <laughs> so we have this, this, this joyful experience in which I'm sure, or I believe very strongly, that as Mary and Elizabeth spend those three months together talking about what has happened to them, they are fortifying each other. Maybe particularly Elizabeth is fortifying Mary, strengthening her faith because the road ahead of her is going to get very hard. <clears throat> and I guess when she goes back after three months, it's time to tell people that she's pregnant. She's got to deal with that. And then Matthew picks up the story with Joseph and his dream. Um, and it's, it's a, I find that actually a very powerful story in our contemporary time. Um, it starts with the, the announcement. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. And it describes Joseph struggling with what he's going to do with his pregnant betrothed. How's he going to handle this? And as, as you know the story very well, the birth of Jesus Christ comes about when the one who should be shunned, at best sent away, at worst stoned to death, the one who is contaminating the purity of our whole existence, the one who is defiled, somehow unacceptable, is taken into our homes. Joseph takes her in. And this is how the birth of Jesus Christ comes about.
But then, of course, the story continues. And again, my imagination was having a, a great time as Ignatius invites us to put ourselves in the scene. And I find myself at the scene of the, um, of the nativity. He says, you know, be a character or just be yourself there. You know, um, and, and somehow, you know, my experience of the Holy Spirit was I'm, I'm inspired to be myself there. Just show up as who you are. You know, there you are, guy. Yeah, you got some training and counseling. And I find myself with the, um, the only other guy in the scene, which is Joseph. Um, now, as this scene sets up, you know, following Luke's description and all of his symbolism, that sort of thing, you've got the birth of God happening in outside, essentially. No palace, no house, no inn. It is happening in the presence of the cathedral of God. The universe, the sky, the stars. Nature, nothing could be better for the birth of God than to be born into the house that God built. So yes, we're horrified that he's in a stable or out in the field or something like that. But as Luke tells the story, that is in contrast to the really pathetic places of the earth, the palaces of the kings and governors um, and, and that sort of thing. And in contrast to where earthly kings are born the heavenly king is born in god's house and again my imagination gets which is where you can have fun with these these stories like okay so i could never quite figure out how she just gave birth by herself and i'm standing there with joseph and i now know from personal experience he's utterly useless <laughs> But into the scene, in my imagination, come the most skilled, professional midwives on the face of the earth. The wives of the shepherds, who probably helped each other give birth, but every day or whenever the lambing season comes, they are helping their flocks give birth to the new generation of lambs. And they know how it works. And they know what it takes and they know what to do. And you wouldn't find in any hospital in our day and age people who know more about it or could do it better. They may not have all the drugs and all the antiseptics and all that kind of stuff that you might need, but they know how to bring new life into the world. And so Mary is now in the hands of, again, very competent women are going to do what women do and that's bring new life into the world and joseph and i are kind of like well what do we do i want to say we went to a bar but <laughs> there wasn't one around <laughs> so we end up outside this whole scene because they're not letting us near it you know you go away <laughs> we'll call you when when you're you will be useful and it's not now <laughs> So I'm with Joseph, and I think, well, we, let's, I, this is where I belong. And Joseph and I start talking, and Joseph starts pouring out his heart, because he's a nervous wreck, and he's feeling awful. He's feeling like he has put his, his wife and his child in great danger, 
he's feeling like he screwed this up immensely, that somehow or another he miscalculated how long it was going to take to get to Bethlehem from Nazareth. It's all his fault that his child is being born out in a field rather than a place that's safe. And he's distraught. And in the process, he tells me his side of the story. And he shares the story about the dream. And he shares the story about his decisions. And he shares his whole relationship with Mary and, and everything he's been through. And he shares the burden of enormous responsibility that he's feeling for having been called and chosen to do something that no one else he knows has ever been called and chosen to do. And he's feeling incredibly inadequate, imperfect and incomplete. And he is sure in that moment that he has screwed it up so badly that it's all going to be over. And he will have been an abject failure. So I've got my counselor hat on and I'm like, listen, and following rule number one is always believe the client. <laughs> they are telling the truth. Don't doubt their truth. And I, you know, somewhere out of my head, my imagination, my inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I look at Joseph and I say, you have a really, really important job. And you're up to it. This child knows what it's like to be God. Being God's easy. Really, being God's easy. <laughs> but this child is now a human being. He knows really well how to be God. He has no clue how to be a human being. Your job is to teach him how to be a human being. Well, I, like I really like that about Joseph. His job is to teach Jesus how to be a human being. Um, and then we hear the cries and, and the, you know, the sounds of a baby just born. Um, and you know, Joseph has told me why he's in Bethlehem and the, the descendant of David and the shepherds. And um, meanwhile, the, the shepherds have arrived and their wives want them to, nowhere near the place either. But now the baby is born, danger is conceived, they invite Joseph in. Um, Joseph does what fathers do when they first see their children. Um, and the shepherds are trying to get in here inside. And, you know, the wives keep them out of here. And Joseph intervenes and says, it's time for him to meet his family. And the shepherds are allowed in. Then you get the great scene. Stuff. I mean, in my imagination, I had to deal with the Magi. That was a little complicated. <laughs> but I did have in my imagination Mary's home in, Beth in Bethlehem, at now at a house, and Joseph's out working. And these three Magi come clomping up the suburban street on their camels and have this whole scene where they're giving them gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And Mary's just looking like, okay, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Off they go. Um, but for the rest of my, some of my meditations on that, um, that the childhood of Jesus, about which we know nothing, virtually nothing. My imagination, I had sat down after, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, I'm now sitting with Mary, interviewing her. Tell me the stories. What was he like? What was it like to be you? 
how did this all play out? And she tells beautiful stories about Jesus as a child and um, always having a, a compassionate heart, kind heart, a curious mind. And one of the things she described is that like most children, young children, he's enamored with his superhero. And for Jesus, his superhero was King David, the great hero of Israel. And you know, in his early childhood, that's all he ever wanted to be when he played, I will be King David. Um, and, you know, they're teaching him and this kind of stuff, describing all this, describing Joseph teaching him, describing him developing as a person. Um, and then there's that scene at 12 years old where they go to the temple. And it's one of the great scenes in the Gospels, I think. Um, they go to the temple and he, you know, gets lost and um, is, you know, find, you know, gathered with the teachers of the law, astounding them with his wisdom. And I don't find that odd at all, because who, who, who hasn't known a 12-year-old who knows everything? I mean, really, that's <laughs> only more annoying are 25-year-olds who know everything. <laughs> we call them millennials. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, they, they lose him. And uh, they, they find him, and, you know, Mary's response is, how could you do this to us? And he looks at them and says, you just don't understand me. <laughs> okay. But they bring him home. And this is the thing. And I think it's really key. Um, there's always a difference between being a child before 12 years old and the child after 12 years old. Something changes. And in my interviews with Mary, she said, yeah, he was different. Because after 12 years old, he starts to learn things. And one of the things he learned was the truth about his superhero, King David. And he's crushingly disillusioned by the reality that his hero was an adulterer and a murderer. She describes Jesus as, as always having this enormous compassion for animals and enormous compassion for the servants and the slaves. And she says, and he's, well, you know, 14 and 15, and he seems to be a little bit too interested in the prostitutes in the town. And one day she describes how she, he overhears his rabbi yelling with great lack of compassion and insensitivity to a servant. And he's completely disillusioned. And he, he comes marching home and he says, I am never going back to synagogue again. They're nothing but a bunch of hypocrites. And this very vivid scene of Joseph looking him in the eye and saying, here's the deal, kid. The rabbis, the Pharisees, have inherited the chair of Moses. Therefore, you will do everything they say, but do not follow their example. Gee, where'd he get that quote? <laughs> but again, having to grapple with the, the disillusionment of life that happens as, as teenagers. And Jesus now grapples with all of that and then, then emerges. And of course, as, as Jesus begins his, his ministry, the Synoptic Gospels especially. John gives us the scene of the wedding feast of Cana in which that other anxiety of hers is, is alive and well. And she says, no, I'm not about to let this happen to anybody else. Um, and the, the a miracle of abundance happens. But in the Synoptics, it's not clear where Mary is in relationship to Jesus and his ministry. There's a couple of scenes where 
he, she and his brothers and sisters show up um, and they're, they're wanting to take him home because they think he's out of his mind. It's not clear where she fell into that. You know, she shows up and your mother and your, your brothers and sisters are outside. Who are my mother and my brothers and my sisters? Those who hear the word of God and keep it. And it's a very rich meditation to think about what did that do to Mary? Where was she in, 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 as she's experiencing that? What was she experiencing as, as Jesus does his ministry in a way that is scandalous, that is breaking all the rules, that is putting him in great danger? Where was she with that? We don't know. What we know is that she's at the foot of the cross, that she's experiencing and seeing and present when the, the choices that her son has made have come to their inevitable climax, that his challenge of the patriarchal system, his challenge of the kingdom of Satan in our midst is getting the full fury of the political and religious and economic powers of the world that need to get rid of him in order to thrive and continue to survive. And she witnesses his death, his, his suffering, his passion. And we seem to know that her response, we don't really get too many inklings into this, that her response is one of profound grief. And again, we're invited to let our imaginations happen. So Michelangelo gives us the, the Pietà, touching scene and and i suppose i have not had this experience and never will what it's like to have, be a mother losing your son to a violent death except that happens every day too many times and greg boyle describes visiting mothers of gang members who have been killed and describes the a a a, a yell a shriek a sound that is absolutely ungodly as a mother realizes that her son, regardless of what her son was up to, or like is, is dead and the grief is just, there's no reason to think that Mary's grief wasn't that profound, as deep and profound as it could be. We don't know where she went. You know, the other women that she's with, there's, a, there's more than a suggestion that one of them was her sister. Her sister may have even been the mother of James and John, which meant that they were Jesus's cousin. I can't figure all that out. It's very, very confusing. But perhaps she went home wherever she and her sister were staying and just wails. Friday night, maybe by midday Saturday, she's just utterly exhausted and can't do anything else but in her utter exhaustion and her grief, she falls asleep. And then Ignatius, Ignatius invites the retreatants to do, again, a couple of very fascinating meditations because there's nothing in the scriptures to guide us. And he invites us to, um, first of all, all right, how did the resurrection actually happen? What happened? I mean, we get nice stained glass windows of those. You know, but there's no, there's no description in the Gospels of 
Jesus coming back to life. There's linens rolled up, there's stones rolled back, and there are people experiencing him alive. But there's no description of him actually rising from the dead. So Ignatius invites us to do that. And again, okay, let's imagine this. How did this happen? We could feel all kinds of things. My imagination when I did that meditation took me to this, that um, some little early Sunday morning, he, he comes back to life. And of course, resurrection is not re resuscitation. There's something different. But whatever happened on Holy Saturday, that's got some great different different switches. But he comes back to life and the stone is going rolled back. And one of the things that we're also, before you get to that point, is you invite in, invited to meditate on the passion is noticing some certain things and that that line that we've all learned and believe me students it's the only thing they know about christian theology and it's wrong you know jesus died for our sins connotating that every time you lied for your mother was a nail in jesus's wrists what I, what i experienced in in the uh, meditating on the passion is that uh Jesus died to set us free from the sin, not our own sins, but the sin of the world that enslaves and deprives us of life. In, the, in my meditation on that, as I'm reading the Passion Narratives, there's a scene where um, he's given over, Pilate sends him to the soldiers, and it says that he's put in front of the whole cohort of soldiers. I look at the footnotes for the first time and notice that a cohort isn't four or five or six. It's 600. So this, this scourging of Jesus, the humiliation of Jesus before he carries the cross happens in the presence of 600 Roman soldiers. Jeering and yelling and enjoying this. And what I'm invited to notice is that that's one of the moments where Jesus realizes that he is about to die for them because they deserve it and his compassion for them because there's nobody less free on the face of the earth than a Roman soldier with a spear in his hand. And then the, the other the additions of who he's, who he's really offering his life for to set them free from that which is enslaving them. What is enslaving them by the, the powers of the world, by the military power that tries to dominate and control with violence. Those who are the victims of religious exploitation, those who are just the victims of life itself. And suddenly who he's carrying on his back to the cross are whole hosts of victims, some of whom very much look like perpetrators, but all victims, suffering. And, and for the whole entire history of the human race. So the morning of the resurrection, you know, and of course, Jesus gets the end, you know, even Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Even those who are directly responsible for his suffering and death, he puts on his back to redeem because they are enslaved more than anyone. So the resurrection occurs in my, in my imagination 
Stone rolls back and he kind of looks around and greeting him. The first one to greet him was the good thief. He says, uh, come on, come on out. Some, you know, come on out. And the good thief leads him out and there gathered in front of him are the whole host of the people he has redeemed by his death who are now free. In the front row, there's, you know, John, or, yeah, in the front row is Zechariah and Elizabeth and Joseph and John holding his head, of course. <laughs> and, um, and then this whole throng gathered in front of him and Jesus steps out, looks around, and the first thing he says is, excuse me, somebody's missing. And Jesus goes to this house where Mary is. And just like that scene in the, in the Annunciation, it, it, in my imagination, it looked just like that. She's waking up from this dead sleep of grief, not wanting to be awake. Wakes up and encounters her risen son, who then takes her back to the scene of the resurrection. And the throng sees her, whole massive throng sees her, all kneel down, start Hail Mary, full of grace. The Lord is with you. And when they finish, she stands up and says, my soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my savior. For he has looked upon his servant in her lowliness and continues with the Magnificat, telling the story of salvation in that poem perfectly. And that's how my imagination took me to understand how this 13-year-old girl with 13-year-old thoughts in her head becomes the mother of God. The God who reveals who God really is. Not a God of transcendence and power and glory and majesty and might, but a God of humility, of suffering, who joins us in the depths of everything we have to suffer, puts it on his back and offers it as a gift in order to bring life out of the suffering and death. So this, this talk was to be about, about that woman, Mary, who went on her own journey. Um, we know, and we'll talk about this maybe a little bit more tomorrow, you know, she does become some kind of a central figure in the church. She's president at Pentecost. Um, she's gathered with the church, waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then there are traditions about her and her and her own life. How much influence she was having with the, with the early church, it's not really clear. How she countered that, what she did, um, how, how involved she was, we do not know. Um, but there she is, as the one in whom God, when God chose to humble himself enough to reveal the fullness of who God is to the universe, chose the most insignificant town he could find and found the 13-year-old girl willing to say yes 
And that is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about.